Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with yesterday's testimony by Fed Chair Jerome Powell before the Senate Banking Committee, in which he was challenged by Senator Elizabeth Warren to explain to the two million American workers he was going to have fired in order to fight inflation by raising interest rates again. Joining us is Richard Parker, who teaches economics and public policy at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government and is a senior fellow at the Shorenstein Center. He is a former managing editor of Ramparts, was a co-founder of Mother Jones magazine, and serves on the editorial board of The Nation. His books include The Myth of the Middle Class and John Kenneth Galbraith, His Life, His Politics, His Economics. Then we'll assess why MAGA Republicans seem singularly devoted to owning the libs as they resort to more and more cruel and nasty rhetoric against minorities, trans and LGBTQ people, and how best to respond to this increasingly extreme trolling. Joining us is Amanda Marcotte, a feminist author, blogger and politics writer for Salon. She is the author of Troll Nation, How the Right Became Trump-Worshipping Monsters Set on Rat-Effing Liberals, America and Truth Itself. And her latest articles at Salon are MAGA Sinks GOP Trolling to Genocidal Lows and Republicans Try But Can't Distance Themselves from Tucker Carlson's Lies. Then finally, we'll examine the thinly sourced New York Times article claiming that Ukrainians working for a Polish company rented a boat in Germany that had traces of residue from explosives found on the kitchen table, and that this small group of non-state actors blew up the Nord Stream pipelines. Joining us to discuss this latest speculation following even wilder speculation by Cy Hirsch is Anders Asland, a senior fellow at the Stockholm Free World Forum, a professor at the Center for Eurasian, Russian and East European Studies at Georgetown University, and a former senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. A member of the Russian Academy of Natural Sciences, he worked as a Swedish diplomat in Moscow and served as an economic advisor to the governments of Russia and Ukraine. His books include Ukraine, What Went Wrong and How to Fix It, and Russia's Crony Capitalism, The Path from Market Economy to Kleptocracy. And before we begin, I'd like to thank our many sustaining listeners and donors whose continued and growing support for Background Briefing over the past year has maintained our commercial-free independence as we build our online podcast audience, broadcast on a growing number of stations nationwide, expand our production team, create a new home for our nonprofit foundation at publictruthmedia.org, and make sure every program remains available to all with no paywalls. If you haven't yet and are able to make a monthly contribution, visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions, large and small, enable us to provide you with a daily briefing on important issues in the news as we work to build a reality-based community in post-truth America. And joining us now is Richard Parker, who teaches economics and public policy at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government and is a senior fellow at the Shorenstein Center. He's the former managing editor of Ramparts, was a co-founder of Mother Jones magazine and serves on the editorial board of The Nation. And his books include The Myth of the Middle Class and John Kenneth Galbraith, His Life, His Politics, His Economics. Welcome to Background Briefing, Richard Parker. Good to be with you, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, Richard. And uh, yesterday before the Senate Banking Committee, there was a very testy exchange with the chairman of the Fed, uh, Jerome Powell, testifying. He was questioned by Elizabeth Warren, who said, Chair Powell, if you could speak directly to the two million hardworking people who have decent jobs today, who you're planning to get fired over the next year, what would you say to them? How would you explain your view that they need to lose their jobs? Powell, I would explain to people more broadly that inflation is extremely high and it's hurting the working people of this country badly, all of them, not just two million, but all of them are suffering under high inflation and we are taking the only measures we have to bring inflation down. To which Warren replied, and putting two million people out of work is just part of the cost and they just have to bear it. Powell getting testy. Will working people be better off if we just walk away from our jobs and inflation remains at 5.6%? So what do you make of that, uh, Richard? Um, Well, you have classic conflict of concepts about 
how uh, economic theory works. You have classic concepts of partisan politics between a cautiously conservative uh, uh, Fed chair and a, a marvelously uh, progressive senator. Uh, you have a contest uh, between the the fundamental interpretation of what a capitalist economy is and what the role of a central bank is in regulating it. And the unspoken part, which you know, I think really your audience must also care about, but what doesn't come up there, is that there's a global dimension to the Fed raising interest rates, which is that it's going to have more impact outside the United States on more people's lives, in some cases in far more drastic ways than losing jobs, um, because we're such a globalized uh, economy already, particularly in terms of finance. So I listen to a discussion like that, and I am uh, distressed by it uh, because it speaks to what remains unresolved even after uh, the Great Recession of a decade ago, which was the worst uh, financial downturn in U.S. history since the 1930s, and also uh, to the confusion and uh, the, the, the disagreements that obtain even after this immense COVID recession that we're just now coming out of that ironically have pushed forward some of the most important massive public sector spending programs in my lifetime. So I think there are a lot of things going on in that condensed back and forth, frankly, and a lot of things and a lot that would take to unpack. It's not a simple uh, simple right and wrong in in case of uh, Powell and uh, and Warren. But is raising interest rates the only tool? Surely there are other alternatives to inflation. I mean, why not break up the monopolies and the price gouging corporations? And so why punish working Americans with these rising prices? So I think two things, one of which is to talk about what we would like. And I, I would certainly with you say that there's an enormous range of powers associated with the executive and associated with the legislative that are not within the ambit of the Federal Reserve that we should be using more of. There are uh, taxes, for example, that could be imposed on uh, corporations buying back stock in order to preserve the stock price rather than investing it in uh, expansion or new jobs or whatever. There are uh, all sorts of uh, ways to try to uh, tax uh, elements of the uh, uh, national and global financial system. Um, there are uh, outrageous levels of profits right now in the petroleum and larger hydrocarbon sector as a consequence of this uh, Putin war and its impact on the price of oil globally. Uh, all of those things are things I would support. I think the majority of your readers, uh, I'm sorry, of your listeners would support. Um, and we have a uh, House of Representatives controlled by uh, the Republicans um, and the Republicans in the House themselves, in turn, perversely controlled by a minority of them who are among the most extreme. Um, simultaneously, you have a Senate in which you've got uh, Kristen Sinema and Joe Manchin still exercising uh, outsized power on what is otherwise a nominal Democratic majority. And you have a president and a White House that are at this point not putting forward massive new spending, given the battle that they have had to get through the spend, the, the massive spending bills that they have, in fact, successfully gotten through. So in theory, I absolutely agree with you that there ought to be, first of all, doctors other than the uh, those at the Fed who are dealing with this disease. Um, and second, that uh, the executive uh, in the form of both spending and taxation uh, and regulation, I should add, uh, should be doing more. But looking at, on the ground uh, empirically at the political landscape in Washington, I'm not sure that the executive has that latitude. And the Fed does because of its relative autonomy, but it has the autonomy to do very few things which are very blunt and Raising interest rates is a prime example. But what is so sacrosanct about a 2% inflation target? I don't think there's anything sacrosanct. I think that it installed itself in the wake of the 1980s and the, uh, the arrival of the long Greenspan years 
when the impact of Chicago economics, of Milton Friedman and the kind of conservatism that Greenspan himself also represented, took upon themselves the primary responsibility of managing down uh, inflation. And they realized that zero inflation may sound enormously attractive uh, in the abstract to some extremely conservative supporters um, of uh, monetary policy, but that it's an impractical uh, goal to seek to achieve. And so 2% becomes a goal that is nominally endorsed, but it is, in, in fact, nothing other than sacrosanct. It could be 3%, it could be 4%. Um, but um, the political consensus uh, has emerged that it's 2%. And while the Fed says, uh, on the other hand, uh, while the Fed says simultaneously that it also has responsibilities uh, to worry about unemployment, it is remarkably ambiguous about the target unemployment rate that it would find acceptable in conjunction with or in lieu of uh, a 2% inflation rate. Well, a group of economists from academia and Wall Street have suggested that the Fed will need to raise interest rates as high as 6.5% to meet its mm-hmm. uh, 2% target. Mm-hmm. Well, so look, there is a 10-minute discussion we can have. There's a 10-hour discussion that we could have. The things that I would introduce into the 10-minute discussion are, first of all, we're not all that good at measuring inflation. Uh, inflation is a nominal concept. Uh, that has the appearance of a great deal of statistical accuracy based on volumes and volumes of data. But most economists are keenly aware that uh, indices like the Consumer Price Index, um, which is one of the most popular of the indices used to measure inflation, has lots of problems with it. Um, Measuring the impact of rent, uh, figuring out what core inflation is in uh, areas like food and energy versus non-core inflation uh, areas is uh, quite difficult. We have lots of evidence that there hasn't been a uniform uh, increase in prices across the core and non-core at the same time uh, for the the past couple of years, that we've had particularly difficult times um, in terms of managing uh, inflation when it comes to energy and when it comes to uh, food prices. And uh, the cost of food is directly related to the cost of energy. And the cost of energy right now is in no small part driven by this little war that we seem to be facing in the Ukraine and all of the blowback as a consequence from that war, from the attempt to impose um, a punishment on the Russians, uh, the unwillingness of OPEC producers to fully go along with the West's demands to to stabilize and even lower energy prices, Uh, and the impact that it's had on shale production, uh, shale gas production in the United States, which had for a few years been uh, exercising great downward pressure on global oil prices. So none of this can be blamed simply on some abstract thing called inflation, it grows out of very specific political decisions and political contexts that are the ground for creating this phenomenon that's measured statistically as inflation, but that those statistical measures are really not, not the, don't give us the kind of information that we need when we need it. But in terms of inequality and growing inequality, which arguably is one of the, the great sins of modern America, mm-hmm. by punishing the, the bottom fifth, I mean, you, aren't you exacerbating the gulf between the rich and the poor? Well, you know, I agree with you. And conceptually, I think that that's right. And I think the long-term trend is absolutely that. But it's also the case that in the last mm, several years, there are um, uh, governmental uh, support systems that have been put in place that we tend not to focus on when we talk about increasing inequality. Inequality in income and income and wealth distribution on a market basis is definitely steadily increasing and has for 40 years. But particularly in the last decade or so, with the increased spending on Social Security, increased spending on Medicare, expansion of earned income tax credit, uh, the provision of SNAP, which is the old food stamp program, uh, et cetera, 
um, there actually has been uh, a diminution of inequality at the very bottom levels, at the tail end of, um, uh, of households in the United States. Now, that's not for me to argue oh, that all we need is more food stamps so we can ignore the problem of inequality. I don't mean to say that. But what I want to do is cautiously say the impact on the poor may not be as great as one might first have imagined in a system that had no backup cushion systems like the ones that have been installed uh, over the last uh, 20 years in particular. So Biden is actually, uh, I mean, what's your opinion? I won't, I won't give you my opinion. <laughs> I'm not supposed <laughs> to have an opinion. <laughs> right. well, what do you think of Biden's performance on the economy? Given that you said the restraints on not now not having the House and and having these two sort of neo Republicans, Mansion and Cinema, but he also has John Fetterman's in hospital being treated for depression, and Senator Feinstein is also not in the Senate because of uh, shingles. Yeah, let me. I mean, let me be frank with you. Which was, I was a Warren supporter, yeah, and, and not a Biden supporter. And if you had said to me during the primaries that Joe Biden would be pressing forward the kinds of spending programs and all sorts of programs that he has pushed forward in the last couple of years, I would have said, you're crazy. This is not who Joe Biden is. He's a centrist. He's an insider. He's whatever. I think what we're seeing is that Joe Biden is somebody who uh, has been very good in a 50-year career at finding the center lane in a, in, 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 at a time when the direction of the road is changing. And I think the fact that he has been as relatively progressive on these massive spending uh, priorities and uh, also on these so-called DEI issues, which were not his priority um, uh, coming into office, um, represent his recognition that the Democratic Party base is going someplace more progressive than it was at any point. Uh, under Clinton or even Obama, and that he, Biden, as a consummate Washington politician, means to stay ahead or at least in pace with that change. So I think on the one hand, I'm quite struck by uh, Biden's willingness to be as progressive as he is. At the same time, as a progressive economist, I worry that we have not gotten through tax bills commensurate to the spending bills that have been pushed through because it's the tax bills that with a much more progressive slope to them would have captured some of the benefits that are flowing up in the system rather than down in the system as we need them to do. Um, Biden has proposed legislation uh, that would uh, introduce some of those tax bills, uh, those tax progressive tax elements. They have not successfully gotten through Congress. Um, how do I want to therefore conclude I feel about Biden? Um, I feel on balance very much happier to have him in the White House than Donald Trump or any Republican candidate whom I can think could possibly be nominated. And I'm happier to have him there at the moment than any of the candidates who in the last cycle were competing with him because I don't think that they could have gotten as much accomplished as he has accomplished, but it is not enough. And then behind all that, because we can't separate it from domestic economic performance is this issue of war with the Russians. Um, I think that we have developed a kind of binary schizophrenia where we aren't capable of talking about the dangers and costs of war and their impact on the economy and the ways in which neglect of the connection between foreign policy and domestic economic uh, policy and and the domestic economy has to be restored by progressive analysts and progressive political leaders, uh, which we have failed to do. Um, I mean, the, the rush to provide unitary support for Biden and the Ukrainians without giving thought to what this means in terms of the risks of war um, or of the financial fiscal costs of a military budget, which is now well in excess of a trillion dollars a year and is a major contributor to inflation, but which, of course, is never mentioned in these discussions of the Fed. 
um, needs to get back on the agenda. How's that? Well, I you're right on the on the money, and I thank you for joining us, uh, Richard Parker. Good to talk with you, Ian. I hope it brought some. I wish it brought more clarity, but at least I hope I raised some issues. And again, I've been speaking with Richard Parker, who teaches economics and public policy at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government and is a senior fellow at the Shorenstein Center. He's also the former managing editor of Ramparts, was a co-founder of Mother Jones magazine and serves on the editorial board of The Nation. And his books include The Myth of the Middle Class and John Kenneth Galbraith, His Life, His Politics, His Economics. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back with an assessment of why MAGA Republicans seem singularly devoted to owning the libs as they resort to more and more cruel and nasty rhetoric against minorities, trans, and LGBTQ people. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Amanda Marcotte, a feminist author, blogger, and politics writer for Salon. She's the author of Troll Nation, How the Right Became Trump-Worshipping Monsters Set on Rat-Effing Liberals, America, and Truth Itself. And the latest articles at Salon are MAGA sinks GOP trolling to genocidal lows and Republicans try but can't distance themselves from Tucker Carlson's lies. Welcome to Background Briefing, Amanda Marcotte. Thanks for having me. So this amazing uh, rewriting of history underway in the United States, and they have no less than the Speaker of the House of Representatives championing their cause and I find it such an extraordinary contrast where they're trying to turn the insurrectionists uh, from January the 6th into martyrs and heroes instead of the criminals that they are. At the same time, in the state of Georgia, they're criminalizing political dissent with environmental protesters protesting the destruction of a forest and the building of this cop city. So it's an amazing contrast that the original party of law and order, the GOP, is now championing criminality and at the same time trying to make criminals out of environmentalists and Black Lives Matter. Yeah, I mean, I think there's this desire on the left to paint them as hypocrites, and that's just not true and has never been true. They're very consistent in their views that criminals are defined as people that are not MAGA, are not Republicans, are not conservatives, are not white, right? So what makes you a a criminal is not whether you break the law in the Republican milieu. What makes you a criminal is if you're a person of color, if you're a disobedient woman, or if you're a leftist or even just a liberal. That's what makes you a criminal. And therefore, anything a conservative does is by definition good and and pure. And anything that the people in the out group do is criminal. So they don't experience this as hypocrisy. They don't experience this as a contrast. They experience this as a very consistent belief that their people are good and everyone else is bad. They're the real Americans. Everyone else is, you know, a a, a threat to America. So in terms of your article, MAGA sinks GOP trolling to genocidal lows, where you're referring to some of the more outrageous statements coming from CPAC, You know, for example, Elon Musk spent $44 billion just to own the libs. I'm wondering why the libs allow themselves to be owned. I mean, there's a a difference between being disgusted with something and being outraged and letting something get under your skin. So is there a tactical shift that the left can go through to at least deny the Republicans and the MAGA people and the Elon Musk of this world whatever pleasure they get out of owning the libs? I mean, I know I really hate being such a bearer of bad news, but like, yeah, this comes up every time I talk about how Republicans are trolling and trolling is all they care about. There's this deep desire on the left to feel like there's a lever we can pull. 
a, a button we can push to change their behavior, to make them act a little better. We have really internalized the mainstream media myth that Democrats are the only people with autonomy in politics. And that's not true. They are grown-ups who are making their own choices. Like the notion that we can adjust or change their behavior with how we react is just false because in my experience, you can get extremely outraged, right? You can ignore them entirely or you can laugh at them. It doesn't matter. They call those all, you're triggered a win because they're not even really following like the liberal reaction super closely. Like they know in your heart that you don't want to hear that transgender people should be eradicated. So even if you just had a completely blank face to that provocation, even if you were a stone wall to that provocation, they know in your heart you're mad. And so that's enough. So you don't think there's a way to ignore them then? And in fact, I think ignoring them is probably like the worst idea. Like, I, I, I think that it's... Or at least not reacting act, to them. Yeah, because if you're trolling, you want a reaction. So they'll just escalate anyway. Like, I, I mean, there's, also, there's an internal logic to their trolling that I think that we're hoping we can kind of fix it because there's no incentive on the right to fix it. So we're praying that there's a way we can fix it. And I don't think that that's true. I think that there's, there's definitely no short term fix. There's no, let's all collectively decide to ignore them and they'll go away fix. Um, I don't even think that's possible like that to get convince people to collectively ignore them. But even if it were, even like even if it were it wouldn't work because they'll just escalate because they are also objectively authoritarians fascists who really do want to quash everybody that's not like them i think you know we have to react by trying to take a little bit of a longer term view of these things which is to make our arguments try not to get too baited like don't get into debates with fascists, I think is a smart move. Instead, just talk about our values, talk about our ideas, talk about why they're wrong and try to talk outwards as instead of to them. But what about getting tough with fascists? I mean, they're hateful and violent and the only thing they seem to be understand is, is violence. I'm, I'm not inciting violence and suggesting that, but at least... I think somebody's got to make a stand. And people did at Charlottesville, after all, and, and a woman was killed. But at least they made a stand. Yeah, I mean, the people in Charlottesville took a stand nonviolently. I think that, you know, I'm not here to argue about the morality of violence because that's not really my purview. But uh, strategically, reacting to fascist violence with violence actually just loses because then that's what they're hoping for, right? Mm -hmm. Like they go out and they do these provocations hoping someone throws a punch, then they can play the victim. And the reality is that in American politics, people who throw punches are automatically lose like the public's opinion, the majority of public opinion. So, you know, one of the things about January 6th that was so damning for the right was that the left decided not to show up, right? There was talk on the left of coming out on January 6th and putting up a resistance to the fascists, right? And it was decided not to do that. And because of that, you know, the riot happened without anyone on the left being in there to be photographed to be cameraed, to be in any way visible doing anything violent. Because if that had happened, then Fox News would have been able to successfully muddy the waters and say both sides do it, everyone's violent, blah, blah, blah. They tried, in fact. They were so desperate for that narrative, they said it anyway. It just didn't have any oomph behind it because they had absolutely no photos. And I would definitely say... Deny them photos of anyone punching a right winger, and and we and that will help strategically quite a bit. So, what about ridicule? I mean, you recall that the House of Un-American Activities terrified a lot of people, 
uh, through the 50s and six, early 60s, and certainly out here in Hollywood, they'd purged a lot of people. And then eventually this hearing, this sort of kangaroo court of, of the House of Un-American Activities, was finally brought down by ridicule. The, the, among the last people that they were hauled before them were Abby Hoffman and the Yippies, and they showed up. One showed up dressed as a Viet Cong soldier, and the other one showed up in the Army of the American Revolution, and then they turned around and called these ridiculous congressmen, you're a communist, you know, you're a communist. They threw it back at them, you know. So is there, I mean, some of the late-night comedians certainly do a good job, I'm sure, but I don't imagine the MAGA people watch Jimmy Kimmel. Um, have, enjoy ridiculing them. I'm not trying to take anyone's fun away. It, it boosts spirits on the left, so I'm all for that. But you're foolish if you think that it would work. Like, they, in my long experience, I don't know anything about the Abby Hoffman thing, but in my very long study of these folks in the past eight years, what I could definitely say is they have decided that all pointing and laughing at them, they, they decide it's a win because they at least got a reaction out of you, and their whole goal is trolling. So if you go, ha-ha, Marjorie Taylor Greene is such a fool, they decide to interpret that as, we've successfully triggered the libs. So, I mean, I don't know. Like, again, I, I really caution against this, like, hyper-focus on the idea that there's, like, a, a button we can push that will just make fascists stop being fascist. We don't, we cannot psychologically manipulate them out of their point of view. What we can do is beat them at the polls. What we can do is out-organize them. And that's been successful. Like, Joe, Joe Biden has been bizarrely more successful at this than all the Antifas around there. And I, I, I wish that wasn't true. I, my heart goes with the sort of more provocative lefty uh, approach, but the let's the boring let's knock on doors let's get out votes let's make sure that the, the and what i would definitely say is we have a huge advantage here which is the majority of americans agree with the non-maga crowd there's a large robust anti-maga coalition in this country we just need to keep those folks engaged and activated. So that should be the focus, not trying to psychologically manipulate fascists out of being fascists, because that's not going to work. Well, but it's always been to my mind that much of this is all sort of works for the, the oligarchs, whose strategy is to confuse and divide the American people so that they don't see what they have in common, whether in, in terms of racial divides, etc., and, and sexual orientation, that we're all in it together and we're all getting screwed by the Koch brothers. So how do, you, how do you sort of refocus people on that simple fact? I mean, talk about it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's, I, you know, honestly, I think that one of the biggest problems was sort of like the the modern like left liberal discourse is there's this tendency to talk about Americans as if they're dumb and need to be their hands held, right? That they need to be coaxed into reason. I think that that's not true. I think that if you level with people, like you just speak to them as adults and you kind of raise your, like if you, you set expectations that you are smart enough to understand a basic argument, a basic value statement, then people will meet those expectations. Like, I, I, you know, we, one of the most powerful arguments that MAGA has against the left is that we condescend to people. And so one of the most count, powerful counterpoints to that is to not do that. So do we believe that oligarchs are petting people against each other in order to divide and conquer? I do. So how do I express that belief to other people? I say that. And I honestly think most people believe that. Well, you're describing, in effect, Amanda, what happened in 2016, where Hillary Clinton talked about the deplorables, and Bernie Sanders, who was running against her in the primary, 
the Trump people did not want to go against him because they recognized that a lot of their voters also support and believe in what Bernie was saying. And Trump, of course, was the faux populist and Bernie was the real populist. Uh, and for the life of me, I don't understand why Hillary Clinton didn't make Bernie her vice president and we would have avoided the Trump nightmare. I mean, I think it, that the percentage of Bernie Trump voters is pretty overrated. Um, I, people focused on a few Democratic primaries where they're open primaries, so it was mostly Republicans that cr crossed over to vote in the Democratic primary in order to vote against Clinton and cause chaos. Um, and, you know, there are a few, and they were just, you know, I would say misogynist mostly like I, I don't think that there was like a huge contingent of people that liked Bernie Sanders because they liked his socialist message and then turned around and voted for Trump I think that that's that's more of a media myth than anything the statistics mm. suggest well what's your your diagnosis of why the Democrats lost the white working class to the, the MAGA folk um, racial resentment. I mean, it's been going on for a long, long time, right? Um, I, I think that, you know, we have a combination of, we have, first of all, never underestimate how much the Republican establishment of their, an enormous, powerful, wealthy propaganda machine has been super effective. For 20, 30 years now, we've been those folks have been subjected to just an absolute fire hose blast of right-wing propaganda that is all about two, like one message, well, a couple messages. One, liberals condescend to you and talk down to you, so screw them is number one. And two is um, the Democrats want to take away all your goodies and give them to black people. And that is probably the number one reason. Um, I think, you know, insofar as you can undermine those two arguments, you know, I think for the first, like, like I said, talking to people in normal people talk, leveling with them, you know, not using like the kind of politician language that too many Democrats use is the best thing you can do. And the second, on the second one, on the racial resentment, issue i think again telling people straight up they're trying to divide black against white in order to take your stuff right and and then doing kind of what joe biden has been trying to do and i recognize this is a big ask because it requires a lot more power than the democrats have but insofar as you can try as hard as you can you know try to make sure that they understand that Voting for Democrats means voting for actual economic improvements. I think one of the reasons that the white working class is was open to voting racial resentments is that they perceived after Bill Clinton that the Democrats had abandoned like their kind of spine of being a working class party, right? And that's mm -hmm. completely fair. Um, getting getting back that lost reputation has been hard. And I know that a lot of Democrats want to do it. And I think that, you know, unfortunately, it's just going to be a long, hard slog of actually proving over and over again through policy and rhetoric that that's who they are. And, you know, tying it to this narrative about how Republicans are, the, are stoking racial resentment on purpose. So you can kind of both and that. I think Joe Biden has actually been doing a really good job, like making the State of the Union about how Republicans want to take away Social Security and Medicare was brilliant. Just stay with that, you know. Mm -hmm. Well, Amanda, we've got through this conversation without mentioning Tucker Carlson. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's always implicit in these things, right? He's, he's the person who pushes a lot of that propaganda. Right. Well, another time. But I thank you for joining us. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Amanda Marcotte, who's a feminist author, blogger, and politics writer for Salon. She's the author of Troll Nation, How the Right Became Trump-Worshipping Monsters Set on Rat-Effing Liberals, America, and Truth Itself. 
and the latest articles at Salon are MAGA sinks GOP trolling to genocidal lows and Republicans try but can't distance themselves from Tucker Carlson's lies. Connecticut Brief Station breaking back, examining the thinly sourced New York Times article claiming Ukrainians working for a Polish company rented a boat in Germany that had traces of residue from explosives found on the kitchen table and that this small group of non-state actors blew up the Nord Stream pipelines. What goes on in your heart? What goes on? Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Anders Aslan, a senior fellow at the Stockholm Free World Forum, a professor at the Center for Eurasian, Russian, and East European Studies at Georgetown University, and a former senior fellow at the Atlantic Council, a member of the Russian Academy of Natural Sciences. He worked as a Swedish diplomat in Moscow and served as an economic advisor to the governments of Russia and Ukraine. His books include Ukraine, What Went Wrong and How to Fix It, and Russia's Crony Capitalism, The Path from Market Economy to Kleptocracy. Welcome to Background Briefing, Anders Aslan. Thank you very much, Ian. So, Anders, what do you make of this New York Times story that is very thinly sourced? It's about as thinly sourced as Seymour Hersh's article was, and it, it basically suggests that a group of Ukrainians working through a Polish company rented a boat in Rostock in Germany that was later discovered that there was residues of explosives on the kitchen table in the boat. And that is extrapolated into this idea that it was the Ukrainians that blew up the pipeline. And obviously, there's always been doubts whether the Ukrainians would have that kind of capability. And furthermore, there, as far as I know, there's a Russian gas pipeline that crosses Ukraine uh, that goes into into Hungary that's never been touched. So it doesn't make any sense, at least to me. What What do you think? I completely agree with you. And uh, what I would like to say, I congratulate the Russian uh, disinformation activities. They better have got the New York Times to publish such a thinly sourced uh, article, which uh, doesn't uh, make sense. And uh, the same Hearst uh, article uh, seems to have been fully debunked by uh, uh, a person, Oliver uh, Alexander, also on a Substack, who pointed out that Hearst's uh, details didn't hang uh, t- together. And uh, uh, this doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Uh, Germany, uh, Sweden and uh, Denmark have uh, undertaken studies of uh, this. They say this is highly sophisticated. It can only have been done by uh, a country uh, and uh, not by uh, some uh, some private uh, uh, person. And here we have two Ukra- people with Ukrainian names who rent a, a yacht and go out perhaps with some uh, explosives uh, in this area at the same time as uh, several uh, Russian warships have been noticed in the area. I think that the New York Times should be ashamed of publishing uh, anything with uh, so few sources. I'm convinced that this is Russian disinformation. Well, Germany's defense minister said today that he sort of dismissed the story and said he still thinks that uh, Russia was behind the blowing up the pipelines. Indeed, and uh, we know that Russia has cut uh, cables between Norway and the northern Norwegian island of uh, Svalbard repeatedly. The Russians have cut uh, underwater uh, cables uh, in the Gulf of Finland, that is on on the Finnish side, and they have cut... uh, the cables outside of Marseille, and uh, Sweden had, has had uh, repeated experiences of uh, Russian mini uh, submarines operating in uh, uh, Swedish uh, uh, waters. We know that there is uh, 
uh, Russian mini submarine base in uh, St. Uh, Petersburg. Russia has all the facilities and it has all the reasons to do this, simply to create uh, an uncertainty. Commercially, there is no cost, but possible uh, benefits because Russia can claim force majeure and can possibly claim uh, insurance uh, from it. And here comes the New York Times with new evidence and say, aha, it was the Ukrainians. The Ukrainians would suffer from it enormously. And uh, uh, because it would uh, suggest that the Ukrainians would spread the war, while it is on the contrary, the Russians who have an interest in uh, 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 do, uh, doing so. And the Ukrainians in all probability uh, do not have the capability to do so. So the New York Times should be ashamed and hopefully deny this story. Well, it's the last thing that Zelensky needs, right? Because the article indicates that Zelensky is not in control, that these rogue elements can go off and do these massive operations. And furthermore, the worst thing that could be happening to Zelensky is that if the German people feel that it was the Ukrainians that made them freeze throughout the winter because of the lack of gas and the high prices they've had to pay. I mean, it's it's definitely not going to help Zelensky at all, this story. Indeed, I complete, completely agree. But uh, what we should also think of is that there are now loosely uh, organized Russian groups, uh, this uh, Russian voluntary army and uh, other uh, Russian groups that are highly suspect and seem to be, or at least include, uh, Russian uh, agents. And uh, some of these appear as if they were Ukrainian. We just had an incident which is claimed to be 45 uh, uh, Russian voluntary uh, uh, corps uh, uh, people in Bryansk that the Russians claimed killed two, uh, killed two civilians, no evidence of it. But uh, clearly there were uh, some Russians who had entered uh, Russia from Ukraine. And the leader in the group who has uh, appeared uh, is uh, a Russian neo-Nazi. So th th these are very strange uh, uh, people. And there are several of these uh, indist indistinct uh, groups. And I think that uh, uh, serious institutions, or if they are still serious, as the New York Times had better check uh, these kinds of groups very seriously before they blame the Ukrainian government. Well, again, that's the last thing that the Ukrainian government needs, is to have the Russians have any kind of evidence that neo-Nazis from Ukraine have been conducting terrorist acts inside Russia. I mean, it's crazy because, <laughs> I mean, that's Putin's narrative that he sold to the Russian people that they're fighting Nazis and there's no way that the Ukrainians would want to help Putin's propaganda machine. Indeed, and we are seeing this. Uh, uh, the Ukrainians are not all the time warning of false flags op uh, operations. Uh, you know, when Stalin attacked uh, uh, Finland in uh, November 1939, uh, he claimed that uh, uh, Finnish soldiers had uh, attacked uh, a village in uh, Soviet, the Soviet Union, which was not true. It was uh, Soviet soldiers who had attacked. Uh, and. Uh, uh, Hitler did the same when he attacked uh, Poland in 1939. He organized the so-called Gleiwitz incident, where uh, 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 German soldiers in Polish uniforms uh, attacked uh, some uh, uh, German object. And the Ukrainians uh, uh, have uh, time and time again warned for uh, such a false flag operations by uh, the Russians. Um, most recently, they have warned that uh, Russians um, are uh, attacking, are about to attack Transnistria, the Russian-occupied territory of uh, Moldova, uh, with uh, uh, Russian soldiers in Ukrainian uniforms. The same with regard to Belarus, um, to to force uh, a Belarus dictator. Uh, Lukashenko uh, to uh, join Russia 
in uh, the war in uh, Ukraine and also this uh, Bransky incident that, that I mentioned, which is just over the, the border uh, to, to Russia from Ukraine. So it appears to me that this is likely a false flag uh, operation. My understanding, though, is that we, first of all, we know that Putin came to power by blowing up apartment buildings on the outskirts of Moscow, killing about 300 of his own citizens. So that's the kind of man he is and what he's capable of. So given the amount of coverage in Russian state media about this so-called incident in Bryansk, about which we've, you know, you have to rely on the FSB for the information, they've really played this up. And they're playing up the idea that there are Nazi saboteurs coming in from Ukraine to commit terrorist acts on Russian soil. Do you think that Putin is preparing the Russian people for another massive false flag operation where he blows up a, an apartment building and kills hundreds of his own people or does something along that scale, which, of course, is how he came to power in the first place? I haven't thought of it, but uh, that's quite likely. That, that is uh, typical uh, vintage Putin to, to do such a thing. And of course, Putin is very good at improvising. He's a poor strategist, but he's good uh, on coming up with things that we would never have thought of, as these uh, uh, bombings of uh, buildings in the, in the fall of the uh, uh, 1999 uh, that you mentioned. So actually, we should think of uh, Putin coming up with something similar. Why not blow up a serious building that is not military in uh, Moscow and say it was the Ukrainians who did it? So what would the motive be if he's preparing to do a false flag operation? My understanding is that it might be a precursor to declaring martial law. Could be, and it could also be simply to uh, mobilize the population more more beh uh, behind him. But uh, he really has big problems mobilizing uh, his people now. So, so it could simply be uh, a reason to make it more possible to, to mobilize uh, the people. I saw an op opinion poll today that 51% uh, of the Russians have a negative view of uh, people who oppose uh, mobilization. So what do you think is going to happen uh, any day now with uh, Bakhmut? It seems as if uh, the Ukrainians have decided to hold it. Uh, and I see assessment from the Ukrainian side that uh, for each uh, dead uh, 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 Ukrainians, there are seven or eight dead Russians. So that uh, uh, the two leading Russian uh, Ukrainian generals, Commander-in-Chief uh, Vita uh, Vitaly Zaluzhny and Colonel General Alexander Siriski, they think that this is worth it. They think that uh, this is sufficient attrition of uh, uh, the, the Russian uh, forces. Uh, we have heard uh, from Washington here various negative uh, uh, assessments of this, and that it's more important that the Ukrainians uh, mobilize their own forces uh, to uh, cut off uh, the land bridge between uh, Donetsk and uh, Crimea, uh, while the Ukrainian generals who so far have been right in most of what they have done. Uh, they uh, take an attitude. Uh, I have no, no view. I'm just listening to what people are saying. Right. Well, it's been an obvious Russian strategy to try and draw in the main Ukrainian force that's training up on new equipment for a spring offensive once the mud uh, dries up. And it doesn't look like the Ukrainians have fallen for that ruse. And in a way, the B team of Ukrainian uh, reservists holding Bakhmut have performed amazingly well. And they've been up against the best Russian soldiers that are left, along with Brigozin's prisoner battalions. Yeah, what uh, we heard, and, and the number two, uh, General Serisky was uh, twice in Bakhmut uh, last week. And uh, that is the real hero or one of the two real heroes uh, from uh, the military uh, uh, campaign. 
and the Ukrainians are now sending in more troops uh, to Bakhmut. So they are clearly not g giving it up, uh, but uh, ins insisting on uh, holding uh, on to it. I've been traveling in those parts of Ukraine in the spring, and I can tell you that in March and April, it's impossible to move around outside of a few uh, uh, paved roads, and the paved roads are really few and in a bad, uh, bad shape. Because for the rest, you are deep in mud if you go out. So therefore, the war will sort of freeze probably for the next two months until we come a bit into May, when the land has dried up again, and then you can move with vehicles over the fields again. Right now, it's impossible. So just in the last couple of minutes, Anders Aslan, since you've written about the Russian economy, as well as the Ukrainian economy, and your latest book is Russia's Crony Capitalism, The Path from Market Economy to Kleptocracy, what explains why the Western strategy of sanctions to bring Putin to his senses or to somehow, you know, get the oligarchs or the, those that are interested in connections to the West to somehow turn against Putin? None of that's worked. I mean, why is he getting support in the global South? Is it simply out of self-interest that the Indians, for example, are getting discounted oil? Well, economically, the support from the global south means very little uh, for uh, uh, Russia. Uh, the reason why it didn't uh, help is Putin doesn't care about the population. The population is suffering, but not uh, that much. Uh, uh, according to the official Russian statistic, the uh, real incomes of the population fell by 10% from 2014 to 2020. Putin couldn't care. And now he's spending ever more on defense and on um, security. Uh, that is uh, re re repression. Uh, economically, the positive effect for Russia was uh, the panic on the oil and particularly on the gas markets. So Russia made more on oil and gas uh, last year than it has ever uh, done. And that uh, saved uh, Russia from the financial uh, uh, sanctions. It will be much worse this year because now the West has got uh, its uh, price caps on uh, oil, oil products and uh, gas. And this uh, should cut uh, Russian oil and gas revenues from half year by about half perhaps even more. And that, since that is more, uh, more than half of the Russian, uh, both export revenues and um, budget revenues, that means that Russia this year will have to do make do with three quarters of uh, export revenues of last year and three quarters of the budget revenues of last year. And that will be felt. But it won't stop Putin, but it will uh, reduce his possibilities of uh, uh, bombing Ukraine. I heard from an electricity manager that the worst situation in the Ukrainian electricity sector was uh, in late November last year. After that, the Russians ran out of precision bombs. Well, Anders Aston, I thank you very much for joining us here today. My pleasure as always, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Anders Aston, who's a senior fellow at the Stockholm Free World Forum, a professor at the Centre for Eurasian, Russian and East European Studies at Georgetown University, and a former senior fellow at the Atlantic Council, a member of the Russian Academy of Natural Sciences. He worked as a Swedish diplomat in Moscow and served as an economic advisor to the governments of Russia and Ukraine. His books include Ukraine, What Went Wrong and How to Fix It, and Russia's Crony Capitalism, The Path from Market Economy to Kleptocracy. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic, 
and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past nine Who will ever know how much she loved them so That dark night alone in America A quiet voice said it something to me Oh